What up, guys and girls? It's Bobby and Sean coming to you separated still. Uh, I am still in South Jersey, and I got the fuck out of New York City while the getting was good. Yeah. So what's been going on with you, Sean? So I got notified on, I feel like it was Monday. Yeah, this past Monday in the middle of class that the rest of my classes were canceled uh, for the afternoon period. My Tuesday classes were canceled. And we would be moving to an online forum for at least until the end of March. Uh, Subsequently, it's been announced that my entire spring semester will be taught online don't know yet if that's going to have any impact on finals if they're going to bring people back but like new york city has put out a ban on any gatherings of 500 people or more so there's a bunch of spring events that have been canceled i don't know what that's going to look like for people that are about to graduate and the graduation ceremony but new york city is like borderline i am legend right now so i immediately got a hold of delta I wish it was the real one again and was like, <laughs> change my flight. And so I, I got out of the city like within 24 hours and it's only just gotten worse from the reports that I've got from friends that are there. I'm talking like zombies in Central Park. I'm talking deer in the middle of the street, uh, cornfields being grown. Will Smith is out there just murdering people. Um, so it's pretty bad. That's again from a New York City resident. You can trust me. Uh, it's the God's honest truth. Uh, escape New York. It's a whole, it's a pandemic, people. Yeah, pretty wild. I'm surprised that you were able to get out because when we were speaking, was it last Monday that we were speaking that you like were like, all right, I'm getting the fuck out of here? No, yeah. And fortunately, the airlines are not charging people for the transfer fees or cancellations. Yeah. Uh, even if you had like a basic economy ticket, they allow you. So I switched my flight to come out to Colorado to Tuesday, the JFK was an absolute ghost town, which was completely lovely. I feel like that's how I'm supposed to travel and be treated. Uh-huh. I had an entire row to myself. Oh, dude, I know. Glorious. Like, terrible that this, you know, flu is going around the country, but I can't complain when I have an entire row to stretch my legs out. Yeah. Like, that's what I've been telling Christina, because, uh, I mean, the rest of my, at least month, because I've been on a research month anyway, so I don't go into the hospital. But they're very, for like this next week is match week for everybody else in med school. So that's when they find out when they're going to match and like residencies. So we have like all, we're supposed to have like lectures and events and everything else like uh, throughout the week leading up to Friday, which is match day. So last week they already canceled. So on Friday they canceled all of our match week stuff and put everything, all the lectures online. And then on Friday when we're going for match day, it's going to be for students only. Uh, and then families aren't allowed into the school. So, like, people are just come in and get their envelopes and then, like, leave uh, or do whatever they want when they supposed to open the envelopes. Uh, so, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I have a feeling, like, graduation is going to get canceled. I mean, the DOD announced that ban on domestic travel for up to May 11th. And, you know, I graduate May 14th. So, that means, like, that ban is three days before I'd PCS or be eligible to PCS. That's nuts. I, it's got to be like such a disappointing thing for all these people. Like, and for you especially now, you've worked for like four years now to get this degree. And the fact that, you know, a graduation ceremony is as much as like you can scoff at it, I think, at undergrad and even in high school. Like when you're going for a graduate degree, that's like one of those things you just want to be with your peers and celebrate like you went oh, yeah. and did like the next level thing. I, 
I think I'd be a little upset if if I w- didn't get that opportunity. Um, yeah, like I mean, I understand the circumstances and I understand the need for it, but like it just—I mean, it still sucks. And then, like, it is what it is at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, the graduations are such like a experience. Like, I remember graduating from West Point. I remember two graduations: graduating from West Point and graduating from Ranger School. Those are the only two days I remembered my entire like of all the graduations I've ever had. You know, and med school probably in the third because that's like. I, like it symbolizes a lot to me too so it's got like a very sim like a very symbolic meaning to like sentimental value for just that that ceremony yeah i mean it's that's nuts i remember when we were going through rasp 2 back in was that 14 2014 jesus six years ago 14 yeah like you yep, were talking yep. about you know this moment back then as we we're you know cuddling watching all of the just greatest kung fu movies that are out there uh and learning about la drang Lodging. If you know, you know, but nobody's it, in the know. No, no, absolutely no one's in the know except three people, and those three people are solely exclusively the proprietors of that story. So, but if you want to be in on it, just say lodging a lot, okay? Like people will then pretend think you know that you know. About. Yeah, pretend. Yeah, yeah, just be like, there's one way to pronounce it, and it's law. And if anyone tells La you Drang. differently, they just they don't read. Dude, you know what I found the other day when I was uh, going through some of my uh, documents looking for um, my 214? I found my RASP 2 packet. Like the one you applied with or the one they gave you after you finish? The one they gave you after you finish that has all your grades, like your performance, all your peer evals, everything. Oh, damn. How, how'd you, uh, how'd that Do you feel? still have yours? I'm sure it's somewhere in one of my, like, army folders of shit that has way too much of my personal information on it like why is on like side note real quick every single form that you have to fill out in the army you have to put your social security number on it oh i know that's like it's brutal like everything oh is this your uh pt card yeah just throw your social on it for us please Uh, okay cool hey I'm, i'm trying to check out here at the commissary sir we're gonna need your social like what the fuck yeah i don't understand how more like soldiers identities have not been stolen like there have been so many times that I mean, even the sign out like on like on CQ, just being on CQ, you could literally steal like two hundred people's identi- identities at once. Not smart army, but sorry, go ahead. You were you were going through your RASP two uh, packet. Oh yeah, so I was going through RASP two packet, and I was just reading some of the the peer evals. And actually, like looking back on it, I'd still probably pretty accurate. Still, like I'm still probably has some of these tendencies to, to like do certain things. Like I remember one was like. Um, like does well when he is in leadership roles, but when not in leadership role, it just fucks around too, or like just goofs off too much, <laughs> which is like super accurate. And I think it still applies to me right now. Like if I'm not actively doing something or like involved in something, I'm just in the background goofing off and messing around. I mean, that's one of those things though, that for people, I think on one of our podcasts, we talk about Ranger school and when like you're in charge, you need to be in charge. If you're not in charge, you need to either be a facilitator or just get out of the way. Yeah. Um, Cause I, that's like a common trait for leaders. Like winners want to win. Like at the end of the replacements, you know, Keanu Reeves wants the ball. You know, he wants to be the hero of the game. And I think that's what most individuals that are in some capacity when they're at a selection want to have that role and want to be validated by feedback that they get back from instructors and the cadre. But that's just not the case. And so it's like finding that happy medium of, I know what my role is. So long as I'm not taking away from the individual that's in charge, you should be good to go. But just don't make like too many inappropriate jokes. Like I think that's where 
I, speaking from personal experience, getting major minuses at Ranger School, that is not uh, a way to endear yourself to the cadre by telling jokes when you're in security. Yeah. But it was just like kind of, it was just funny like looking back on it and seeing some of the stories. I remember of all the peers, I had one guy, I wonder who, I still wonder who it is to this day that like shit on me in peer evals and said that they wouldn't go to war with me, you know, on the peer evals. I was like, I wonder who that guy was. I really wonder who it was. Well, I would guess it's down to two people. And again, if you know, you know, it's either La Drang, uh, because La Drang, um, or it was uh, the redhead. I don't know, man. I feel like that would be something that that individual would have done. Maybe. But I have no idea. Like, I have no idea. So I was like, whatever. But it's just funny, like, looking back on all these paperwork and reading, like, the psychological eval and shit. And I was like, what is going and like all the the um, the board uh, like notes. Mm-hmm. Very interesting to read. I appreciated my board notes. I felt yeah, it too. was pretty, especially from the uh, sergeant's major that were on the board. Like that, that's the people you want to find out from if if like you're really a good fit. Like the officers, yeah, they're important. But like I want to know from this sergeant major if he thinks I'm a total turd, and if he doesn't, oh, then dude. there's still hope. Should I share my story about my board? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. <laughs> things not to write about in the future. <laughs> so things not to do at RASP2. Uh, so at one point, at one point, one portion of RASP2 is that you write like an ethical dilemma. You know, you write about a situation where you're put in this very like in this gray area and you have to write about like what you did and like, what you learned from the experience. So me being an idiot, I wrote about how this one time in Ranger School, you know, we still MREs, but these are extra MREs that the RIs had left in a locker. So they were not actually like a buddy's MREs. They were just extra MREs that the RIs had to pick up later or the next day. So it wasn't like we were stealing from our buddies, like stealing MREs from our buddies. We were stealing MREs from the, the RIs who had left an extra case MREs for us. Long story short... I kind of wrote about this experience and saying um, how we stole his MREs and then like, the RIs got pissed, like smoked the fuck out of us, and I felt really bad. And then from now on, I won't like go my way to like you know get an advantage over anybody. Um, but yeah, but basically, I wrote about that story. And then at my RASP two board, I had uh, Sergeant Major Pulyup, who I think was the regimental like ops sergeant major at the time. Uh, read my personal statement and he's like, sir, you're a piece of shit. And then I was just like, damn. And then everybody else didn't really have any comments about it. But like at the end, reading all the board notes, because at the, at the board, you know, you have like two uh, 05 so lieutenant colonels or higher. You're just like the DCO or a battalion commander, one of the battalions. And then you have two sergeants majors, uh, which are either like op sergeant majors uh, at the battalion or at a regimental level, like not operational uh, sergeant majors. Uh, but at the end of the board, uh, when you, you know, either get accepted or, you know, rejected, they give you the board notes from each one, each member of the board. And then on Sergeant Mayor Japoyat's, you know, I got three out of four uh, goes, like one non-select uh, from Sergeant Japoyat because of that story. But everybody else, like, commented on, you know, showed composure and maturity and learned from him his, his mistakes, you know, that I was very trainable and that, you know, I deserve a shot to see if I can, you know, sink or swim in regiment, which was very good. It was good feedback. No, I, I, that story, I, I remember when you told everyone in our class, like afterwards, like, hey, what'd you write about? And some people's stories were just like, this feels fabricated so yeah. that 
you try to make yourself look good, but it's not really right. like a situation that has any kind of moral dilemma. This is just a yeah. I'm peacocking moment. Yeah. Um, and a story, for instance, that could be is like, yeah, I was on EIB and like I was I was going to be true blue, and I realized that somebody else like you know lost a compass, and I, I found him out there with you know without their compass, and it was like I could either go back or be late, and so I wouldn't get true blue, and or something like just completely like non nonsensical and then right afterwards you're like what what was the moral dilemma there were you just trying to brag about how like well you were doing on eib testing or like how you're this like fatherly figure for whomever that you ran across on the land like it was just an awful story right, right. yeah and then but then hearing your story i was just like holy shit <laughs> like we should have <laughs> talked about this before we wrote about it Bobby. like that is yeah not, Hey, I'm the jail thief. Hey, guys. Um, remember how the entire company got smoked? Yeah, like, no big deal. Everyone got extra PT. That's great. Yeah, so I was that guy. But I, th- I wonder if that was, like, an endearing quality to them that I would, like, share this really fucking, like, bad story about myself and, like, how I was an actual piece of shit, you know? So it's like, I wonder if that had, like, a, had played a factor into that whole situation. Yeah, I mean, the only real thing I remember from my board is I fell over myself. Uh, I think twice. I think going in... Were you in, bad phased? Uh, no. Uh, yeah. I think when I was going in to report, I tripped over myself walking up to the oh, desk. Dude. Yeah. Started off real hot. And then when I got out to walk out, I think I tripped over myself. And uh, yeah, afterwards when they brought you like back in, because some people, you know, it could be 30 seconds or it could be like 45 minutes. Um, when I walked back in, they were like, congratulations. And before I walked out, one of Sergeant Major was like, just don't trip on yourself on the way out, please, sir. And I was like, okay, like, thank God. Like, I'm gone. I'm running. Like, I'm going to go back to my room, let my company commander know that, like, I don't have to go back to that unit. And then, you know, like, catch up with everyone else and hopefully find out the good news from, like, our, our small friend group there. But there, there's some there's some cool stuff that you get to do and experience at RASP. And I think, like, meeting people now, looking back on it, was probably like one of the cooler moments uh, being in the military because I think there's a difference between individuals that go to Ranger Regiment and go SF. Um, and I thought it was really interesting, like seeing how like the junior officers interacted with one another, how serious the you know NCOs were going through to get back to their respective battalions because how much the organization meant to them, and so like nobody took it lightly. But it was really cool being in an environment where everyone knows that the the next step in that progression, if you're selected, is going and leading like a phenomenal group of rangers. And I think that's just a little bit different than the SF route where you're kind of like, uh, you know, I'll get to a team and, you know, you're surrounded by guys that have been there, you know, for their whole career. So I feel like if you constantly have to cycle rangers back through RASP 2 is like, you know, E6s, E7s, E8s, you just get a like a more invested ranger um, into that unit, like building that esprit de corps. I don't think it ever like diminishes after that point. Yeah. I was going to say like, I uh, actually said, got into not really like a argument, but like shared uh, on like one of those meme pages. Uh, I can't remember which meme page it was, but basically they were saying that like RAS2 is a huge waste of time. And like, why would they send like NCOs, like Ranger E7s to go to RAS2? And on you know like non-select like good guys and select bad guys, so like I wrote like uh, a little something about 
you know, I think RAS 2 is uh, a pretty, for the most part, the vast part is pretty accurate in terms of, you know, assessing people and whether or not they belong or don't belong in the organization. And then ones that don't get selected, you know, there's usually a pretty good reason why they were non-select that the board felt that way. But then, like, uh, I was thinking about it a little bit more, and it's just like, what other organization in the military uh, that does that where... You know they con- they constantly reassess their leaders to come back to see if they still deserve or f- are still fit to serve in, organ- in the organization. And I, I, I like my experience. I don't know any other military organization or any organization period that does that. That constantly makes their leaders come back and reassess at each stage. And I think too, it's important to realize that the Ranger Regiment. I mean, it's it's a it's a regiment. It's a brigade size organization. But there's only limited positions for those qualified rangers. And so unlike the regular army where if, you know, you've picked up your seven and you're waiting to take a platoon, in the ranger regiment, there's only a handful of platoons that you can take. Whereas if you're in another brigade combat team or a division, they can PCS you. I mean, there are, I mean, probably hundreds of more regular army platoons um, that would be, you know, available for that E7 than just the handful that are in the Ranger Regiment. And I think that's right. why they have to create this assessment tool for individuals to come back. So, you know, like like in the Army, there's only going to be a couple PLs and platoon sergeants at any time, uh, you know, during the year, and it's a fixed sum. And so if, if you can be real picky about it, then, you know, you're not going to run into an issue with getting that wrong individual into a leadership position. And then it goes back to, you know, you make a mistake – and we've talked about it before, some of the mistakes that I've made as a platoon leader in the regular army and then in, in ranger regiment, you know, you're always fearful of that helicopter coming in the middle of the night and just picking you up and taking you off because there's always somebody waiting in the queue that is completely qualified to, to lead. Um, and it's just, again, showing up every single day ready to ready to take on an obstacle and overcome it. Yeah. I was going to say, like, uh, that reminds me of, like, my first uh... – experienced my first come to commander when I reported to him and got like his first, you know, commander's briefing and welcome to the regiment. He was like, you know, don't think that you made it because you got here. You still have to earn it every day when you come in. And I, I, and I like wrote about that before, but you know, that's always stuck with me that, you know, you're always, doesn't matter where you are. You still have to earn the right to, to be, to belong in the organization and to do what you do every day. Like, are you making yourself a better person for it? And you are you like fully applying yourself to it, or you're just like kind of walking through the motions? So that was always like a, a great moment I took away from regiment. I I took away that, although it was like getting a second platoon position, or for the guys that were coming from regular army where they'd spent maybe like two years at their unit where they did instead of XO time they did like PL time then scout PL time. Yeah, there was something so completely foreign and new to being a ranger platoon leader compared to like being a platoon leader in the regular army because I felt there was a greater responsibility given the mission sets that the regiment was still taking on in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, uh, and elsewhere uh, around the world with some of the cool training opportunities. But also the fact that it was a very mixed bag of mission sets that you could possibly assume at any time if you were on like uh, any, you know, in the readiness cycle, and so because of that, it wasn't like you could just sit back and be like, okay, I know how to do Bradley PL time. I know how to do light PL time. It was like, well, okay, not only do I need to know how to do airborne stuff, we have to know how to do breach, the, the medical training um, is far superior than the regular army. So like there was 
facets of being like a soldier. And then when you go and become a ranger, it's just like the entire time I was there, I felt like I was learning something each and every day. And so because of that, you could never feel comfortable in your position. Oh yeah, dude. I felt the same exact way. Like, uh, luckily for me, it's like a, you know, as a fire, as FSO, you pretty much stay in that position from like when you show up to regiment and then when you leave, uh, and then you might go up to like the RHQ or like battalion HQ for a little bit to work in the fire shop. But as like an FA officer and regiment, like all I did was do FSO time. Then I did two full training cycles as the FSO. And like, it wasn't until like I was towards the end of my time in battalion that I was like, Oh, I, I think I like understand what I'm doing. Like the entire first training cycle was like drinking from a garden hose like, or drinking from like a fire hose. I'm in a garden hose just like getting blasted with like all these things I had to do, like things I had to master, be able to like plan this through that. And it wasn't until like, you know, halfway through the second training cycle where I was like, Oh, I think I kind of understand what's going on. I'm actually like getting better at this. So it's just like, it was crazy how much you like you learn and expected to know and master. And the big difference between the regular army and ranger regiment for me was in the responsibilities that could be passed down to, you know, the lowest ranger in your platoon because they're going to be able to execute literally like any any mission, any task you give them to its entirety and in most of the time like perfection. And my first deployment uh, if we got into contact, I was really focused on like the objective and where I was looking. And if we had air support, it was like, okay, like, you know, you thought about it. Um, and the platoon sergeant had uh, his job and, you know, we, we melded perfectly in how we responded um, to both IEDs, to indirect uh, and direct fire in Southern Afghanistan. But then it was like, you get to Ranger Regiment and it's like, okay, while, yeah, you're still concerned about what's going on on the objective, as a Ranger PL, you're focused on the externalities that are going to affect it. So you're really tied into adjacent units. You're tied in much more to the air support that you're provided, to the constant stream of reports that you've got to provide as a ground force commander, up to task force. Um, and then all of the triggers that in the regular army, you kind of wait on the radio before you feel really comfortable to just go to that next step um, in the scheme of maneuver. It's like, okay, yeah, I know that once we breach, first platoon's going to move straight through that breach and they're going on to their objective or they're going to set up a support by fire. And in, in my experiences in the regular army, it was like, okay, yeah, breach is open. Roger, moving through the breach. Roger, continue. And like, it was almost like you had to approve every single step. And the Rangers, it was like, seamless transitions like they knew as yeah. soon as that breach was open unless someone called up some sort of like you know ied that that wasn't observed or there was some en enemy movement you know coming into to their uh their avenue then you wouldn't say anything they just continue moving and it's really quiet on the radio only like the most significant reports are going to come up um, and it made for just really quick, and again, going back to like decisive action, it was just so impressive, like, because it was, it was like 100 miles an hour uh, on the ground. And I thought that was just yeah. like so cool. Right. Because you as a PL, like your job from the big army, you're more hands on and managing the fight, whereas in regiment, you're not even really managing the fight. You're just focusing on shaping the battle and providing all the, you know, like coordinating and responsible for like the macro level and how it plays in the macro level and like your ncos are running like the tactical like down to the you know the tactical side of it where you know where you don't have to like even care about it you know we're not even care not like not care about it but like you don't have to worry about it because you know 
of the NCOs know their job and are going to know excel tactically and you just have to more focus on your role and managing like assets and coordinating and everything else on like a macro level. Just yeah. really cool. Like Another way to look that. at it too is it's like all these infantry platoon leaders grow up watching Band of Brothers and Dick Winters like leading from the front and everyone wants to be in that position. But then you get to the regiment and you're like, no, I, w- I want to go up and breach with them. No, I mean, I, I want to go be on you know, the, the raid element. And they're like, start looking like, what the fuck do you do here? Like, why are you here? I don't need you to do this. Like I've been doing this for, you know, anywhere from seven to 13 years. Like I know how to do this. Like go set up at a position where you can command and control. You know, you've got your two, uh, radio sets, you know, attached to your ears at all times. And you're just doing nothing but like flicking that knob, sending reports up, receiving reports and, and being like that funnel, um, and you know, it's only like in really like extreme cases where you even have to, you know, pull the trigger. And so it's like really recognizing, and I think in the regular army, they do a poor job of it because right. when I was getting ready for, for command, I was like, okay, I want to bring the Ranger regiment and the, the Abrams charter. And I want to make that this company's like mission. I don't want, uh, platoon leaders to be leading into, uh, an objective that should be the platoon sergeant. Like, again, let the person with the most experience do this and not some like brand new second lieutenant, first lieutenant hybrid that really only has ranger school. And that doesn't completely validate you as a good platoon leader. Um, Um, and it's just recognizing that. So if you're a brand new lieutenant out there, this is not to say that like you don't have experience that's still, you know, at the end of the day, your responsibility as a platoon leader for everything that the platoon fails to do. And then if it's successful, it's because of your NCOs. Um, but, you know, you're going to have to make tough choices. But for the most part, you should be really maximizing the experiences of that platoon sergeant of the squad leaders who at this point uh, and maybe for the next five to 10 years have more deployments, um, you know, than the than that second lieutenant will. Yeah, absolutely. But I think yeah, like for that in the big army, I know. Like I think, in my opinion, some of the responsibility shifts a little bit from like the NCO side to the officer side, just because I feel like in the big army, you know, you have like weaker NCOs as a whole compared to regiments. With like the weaker NCOs, you have to be able to, you have to like kind of uh, like cover down on top of like the weaker NCOs, so that like the officers in the big army, you know, kind of do a little bit more than they should because they're just used to doing that with weaker officers, and then they show up to regiment, you know the NCOs are so tactically like sound proficient in their jobs. So, like they don't really need you as much. I think that like, like you mentioned last week that that kind of caused a little bit of drama with you and your platoon, like not, and like kind of overstepping your bounds and regiment. Cause like we, as an, like coming from big army to regiment is such a huge transition. Oh, and that was one of the things where you talk about like RASP too. And I think where a lot of individuals, especially senior NCOs are frustrated with having to go back through the process because I've heard, from multiple NCOs, the same questions get asked. Like, if your company commander has never been in the Ranger Regiment, like, do you think that is something that they should be privileged to do um, and, and fill that role? Or should or should you, as an officer, in order to be the regimental commander, had to have been a PL, XO, company commander, some sort of battalion, regimental staff, battalion commander? Like, is there a is there this linear progression that you have to fill? And a lot of the Rangers are like, yes, like I don't want my company commander never having been a platoon leader because then you run into issues where that company commander is treating the Ranger company like a regular armored company, which is just, it will really hamstring a lot of the initiative uh, that's that's taken on by the Rangers, both in training uh, and in combat. 
and the feedback that whenever you know an NCO has said something along those lines of like, yeah, I think I think you should have been a PL or I think you should have been a company commander, immediately is like a, how dare you? Like you need to respect that rank. Um, same thing with the the junior officers. Like, do you think your company commander should have served? Um, and I think there's been some. I mean, I, I think everyone that's been in Ranger Regiment knows great officers that weren't PLs, company commanders, and did some phenomenal things for the organization. Then there's some that, like, you know, did not do well by their Rangers walking straight into a, a, a more senior position um, and not having served in the junior roles. I mean, it's like a you really run the gambit. And then the problem is, like, people staying in. A, a lot of the company commanders that maybe weren't PLs were because maybe they're they didn't do so hot at the board the first time, or they didn't think about going to Ranger Regiment because of other reasons uh, in their lives. But, you know, you still have to, to weigh that. So, like, I, I'm kind of torn between whether or not you should be a platoon leader before a company commander, before a battalion commander, before a regimental commander. Um, I mean, <clears throat> I think obviously, like, ideally, you'd want someone that's done that, like, in the like, perfect scenario, like, the, the rise of the ranks like that. But I think if you're, like, uh, excluding other qualified candidates, I think you're, like, limiting your applicant pool. And then you worry about, like, the issue of uh, becoming an inbred organization in terms of, like, the leaders that, like, grow up in the organization come back to the organization. So it becomes – there's a little bit of inbreeding that goes on. So you lose some innovation. You you lose some of, like, the flexible thinking because you're always – you're kind of concreted in the thing a certain way and doing a certain way because that's how you've always done it because you've you've grown up in the organization. Um, So I, I would worry about that a little bit. That's a great but, you know, point. With, but then, but then at the same time, though, like that's why they had the Abrams Charter, where you know officers are now NCOs have to leave the organization, go out to the big army, you know, take some of the tactics they learned in regiment, take them to the big army, and then also take this the same stuff back, where they see things how they do it differently in big army, you know, take those tactics and TTPs back to the regiment, and then overall, you know, you create both not only a more effective fighting force in the regiment because you're bringing some tactics back from the big army. For making the big army a little more tactically sound too by bringing these tactics from regiment down to the big army so it's like you know people like shit on the abrams charter like saying why i have to do this but like at the end of the day like you're thinking about it like from a talent perspective and from like an overall army perspective you know i think it starts to make sense if you really think about it and then kind of ignore the micro level and focus on the macro level that's a great point and to to dovetail uh, on that when I was a PL at Hood, I was concerned, like, I'm never even going to be looked at because I'm coming from, like, the heaviest of heavy divisions in the Army. Like, why would an airborne Ranger Battalion be like, yeah, like, that's what we want. That that dude's seen Bradley. He's like, sure, that translates. And Dude. it just comes down to, like, managing people and being able to, to manage, you know, the operations that are right in front of you and what you don't always have a choice. Yeah. And like you can always change the situation that or like the cards you've been dealt, but you can't control how you respond to it. Like for you, like going to kind of like a shitty unit, like you said, like you could have just accepted it and just been like, "Fuck it," like I'm stuck here. I'm not. Gonna, I'm never gonna be able to go to regiment. But you still like worked hard and excelled at your job and proved to like your superiors and then proved the regiment that you belong in the organization because you excelled at whatever role you were placed in. And you like look at me, like coming from big army, like from going from FA, like I didn't go right to ranger school out of uh, Bullock. Like, I didn't get my tab until I was already a first lieutenant. Like, I didn't um, even, I applied for RASP 2 as like a good, um, like late, or not even late. Like, I applied for RASP 2 like two months after graduating from Ranger School. And like, I showed up at RASP 2 and I was not in the best shape because I had like graduated from Ranger School like five months before. But, you know, I still proved that, you know, I wanted to be there and showed that, 
you know, despite that I went to second ID and like, I didn't really have any combat experience. Obviously didn't have like airborne school. Like I was a straight up leg, you know, like, and they still see talent and then they still recognize talent and they still reward talent. And I think that's a very unique aspect of regiment and kind of like a lesson I take from that is that, you know, doesn't matter where you look like the talent is always there and that the cream always rises uh, to the top. So that, you know, if you're in a shitty situation or you're like dealing with like a shitty command or like a shitty, like, you know, shitty hand that you've been dealt, you can still rise to the occasion and still prove to yourself and prove to others and like move on to the bigger, better things because you've proven that, you know, that you show up and, and you work hard every day. I think effort just goes a very long way. Yeah. Both I mean, when you, you gotta care. Yeah. When you want to assess, when you're there, while you're serving, when you leave, you know, doing things that make the the Ranger Regiment proud while you're fulfilling the Abrams Charter. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was an aide, one of the things we tried to do was, because Stewart is just right down the road from Hunter, that was right around the time that, like, Colonel Vanek was making, like, the Abrams Charter a thing for, mm-hmm. like, E6s. And so when I got to you know, the division commander got some FaceTime with him. I was like, hey, you know, we've got, there, there are a lot of rangers that are looking to stay at 175. If we can come up with some sort of a, you know, a trade-off here between like do 12 months at Stewart then go straight back to Hunter, like that would be really advantageous because, again, Stewart's at a really unique position where a lot of the training that 1st Battalion does is at Stewart. So, like, the NCOs are incredibly knowledgeable about all the live fire training uh, and exercises that are going on there. They can stay close. They don't have to move. You get them for a year. And when most of 3ID at the time was uh, heavy, except, I think, for the 2nd Brigade at the time, before it switched to, mm-hmm. I think, Bradley's. Um, you know, so they were just looking for some good light fighters. Uh, and I, I don't think it ever really ended up taking off because I, I think there was a larger, like, big army saying, no, you don't you don't exclusively 3ID get to control the, the 175 uh, charter uh, rangers. But that was something I was like, oh, my God, like, if, if people don't actually have to leave and they can still go to Tybee Island on the weekend, like, that would be an awesome trade-off. Right. But it, like, defeats the purpose sometimes. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I like I see both sides to everything, but I try to like when people have an opinion, I try to see like from both perspectives from it and try to see like imagine, you know, the, like Colonel Van Dyke, imagine his position, like trying to like what his intent was and what his thoughts were like implementing this idea in and not looking at it from like the micro level, like my perspective, like, oh, it sucks. Like I have to leave the regiment and then, you know, go to big army and come back. Like I'm wasting my time. Like I try to see from both sides so I can see, you know, try to approach situations from both sides. It's one of those things that you just get the, I think the more mature you get through your service and seeing like what each unit has to offer and the the training opportunities. Um, I'll tell you one thing that's something I I noticed uh, when I left regiment and then came to like 4ID. The guys that had been in Ranger Regiment with me that were stationed here, like you'd go to a range and, you know, they'd be wearing... You know, 90%, 95% of their their kit, including their PPE. Like, they weren't wearing their gloves on uh, some hook attached to their, their hip pocket, like some cool guy look. They didn't have, like, unnecessary mags 
all over their kit. Like, yeah, I need one on my shoulder uh, for when I'm in the prone. I have got one uh, right next to my kidney for extra, uh, you know, uh, extra def- defensive new uh, means because it's defensive uh, because the bullet has to go through a bullet and my body armor. Like, just like really stupid kit setups. And like, I'm talking from like an officer standpoint. Um, you can tell the guys that were more influenced by like the cowboy shit that they saw SF do on deployments with like how they just wore their kit and or didn't wear kit versus the Rangers. It was like, no, like put your glasses on, put your gloves on. Like here's a generic kit setup. You can tailor it somewhat to your needs, but like we're giving you the stuff that you're going to need regardless. Like we're not going to be like, oh my God, like if there's some cool guy pouch that we want, we're going to make sure it's something that the was it the the eight shop has already tested and approved before it gets sent down to the battalions like they're going to hook you up um we talked about learning one of the things that i loved was doing inventories like in the regular army doing inventories monthly sucks for si oh yes awful like the worst thing on the planet because something's missing you're going to have a supply sergeant that really knows his way around like pbuse and fixing zeros to be ones and twos for whatever you need but when you get to go see a ranger arms room like that is some of the coolest like time that i spent like in the cough just learning what some of these different weapons were that i'd never seen um even with like a, a light unit armory um when we were transitioning from from bradley's so like it, it, you know, getting in there and finding out what all the different optics do, what the different styles of the M4 and the scars do, uh, how to change out, you know, the receivers. I mean, like, there's so much cool stuff in there that a Ranger platoon and a Ranger company has on, like, you know, every single mission set, and you take a lot with you to Afghanistan because you don't know where you're going to be fighting next. It, that was like for me some of the coolest times uh, as a ranger pl outside of training because you got to see exactly like okay oh my god if we need this oh it's right there cool we don't even use these no these are just for backup oh my god like a regular army company would love to just have these as the primary you know uh, night vision devices it was incredible yeah i one of the joys or i guess the added benefits of being the company fso is that you cover down on all the extra duties that all the pls don't want to do because they're busy being pls so I did fucking SII every other month because it legally had to be every other month. Uh, just because I was, you know, I wanted to help with the PLs and kind of cover down a little bit. So I was in the, I got so good at SII, I could do the arms room in one day. That's stupid. Yeah. That's how fast I used to be able to do, like, the arms room SII. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know, like, uh, the regiment, like, the average ranger company is, like, like arms room uh like sai i think it's like 50 pages if i remember correctly that sounds that sounds pretty accurate i mean like the book that they had for our company was was like i mean it's a huge binder yeah and then i did that every other month so i got so good at it like usually for the pls it takes them like three days to get to the arms room but just because i'd done it so much and was so good at it I could get through in one day, but but basically, like I the system set down, like all the arms guy arms room guys like knew me how I liked all the numbers read out, and I was just so fast at finding numbers. It was just like, but it was just like great experience, like just being able to go through the arms room and it's just seeing the amount of like weaponry that was available, and I was like always like it was crazy. Like you have like squad leaders have five or six different weapons they would take out depending on what they wanted to do that day. It was wild. 
Or something else that people might not know is like companies have strikers. Mm-hmm. So like you've got to go and do layouts. I, I, that was one of the f- funnier movements when, all right, guys, we've got to go lay out the strikers. And half my Rangers looked at me like, the fucking what? Like we don't go down to the motor pool Monday. No, 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 no. Oh, yeah. We don't, we don't do that around here. That's wrong <laughs> unit. <laughs> like, okay, well let's just go take a look just for the sake of looking, you know, just humor me and you get down there and like, what the fuck is this? Like holding up a wrench or where the fuck is this mat that I need? I don't know. Like you go get it. God damn it. Someone get the supply start and you're just like, holy shit. Like that's the one thing where like, you know, in a Bradley unit, people knew everything like yeah. that, that Bradley, you get down to the strikers, you're like, fuck it. I know how to turn it on and drive it. Like <laughs> we're good. Right. I don't need I all know. this like extra BII. Yeah, that's the one thing that Ranger is probably not the best at is uh, is maintaining equipment. Even though in the Ranger Creed is you know my care of equipment. Well, I think that with the weapons, definitely. But like with yeah. the strikers, I think because all that is uh, tasked out, like because they've got the 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 civilians that work uh, with regiment to like you know keep all of those, and then the the eco you know does a great job too. Yeah, with with maintenance support for those vehicles. I mean, because they're not used very very often. I mean, you might take out like. I feel like the razors and the uh, the Humvees get used and more for just like, all right, we got to go to the range. Let's go. Right, or like right. get guys trained on the bus driver thing. Yeah. No, I totally agree. But it was just great, like, seeing everything that we had in Regiment. Makes you miss it. Also, it makes you appreciate, like, how much, like, it's changed me and made me, like, a like I can see now, I can like, like, looking at, like, externally, like, from a third-person like third perspective, like, looking at how, like, I act now. I can definitely see like the parts where regiment like drilled that into me, like attention to detail, like working hard, like doing the right thing, like you know, all these like little things that you don't really appreciate the time, all these lessons that you learn. But like over years, like looking back on, I was like, oh, so that's where like this comes from, or this is where this habit comes from, is because I used to do this in regiment, and that's how I started doing the habit. It's just kind of crazy looking back on it, like how much it's changed me. And I'm sure it's changed you too. Yeah, I I let the this stuff just roll off my back a lot easier because there's like real world problems that you have to deal with, like actual like life and death scenarios. And I think everything else and for a lot of veterans out there, it's probably similar. Like if, if you've been on, you know, some sort of a significant deployment, you're like, okay, like this is real world. Like all the other stuff back home seems pretty petty. Like right now we've got this giant like group thread for all of the one L's uh, at law school. And there are a couple people that are just raising a stink that they have to take online classes. Okay, if we're taking online classes, then we should get rid of grades for the semester. It should just be pass fail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, people, you know, people might have like disabilities and, and can't focus on in online fashions. So that's great. Yeah, well, let's get rid of the curve. That's real instrumental in determining like where you rack and stack. And like we've already gone over the curve. Like it did not help me last semester. I helped other people, but it did not help Sean. Um, or, or people complaining that the dean, again, this announcement came out just this you know, like past couple of days that the rest of the semester is online. So they're going to come out with more information, but people are just like jumping the gun and complaining and bitching and moaning and just like, oh my God, like these are truly like these privileged individuals that everyone in like conservative media, that everyone in the military will point to and be like, they don't know what the real world is like. And it's just super aggravating. So I totally see why people dislike students and dislike academia because there's like no grit. Like if the worst thing that you have to do is you're telling me you're going to be able to stay at home 
take an online course where you can still interact with the professor because there's going to be it's going to be videotaped live. You're going to be able to raise your hand in class. There's no difference at all. Zero except you're not sitting next to somebody. Like that's really going to take away from your ability to learn the subject. Like if that's really the case, you're going to be a shitty lawyer. Because something's going to come up in a case at some point that you weren't able to see that foreseeability factor, and it's going to throw you for a loop, and then your client's going to be worse off. And hopefully your client isn't someone that's like waiting on a, a actual life or death sentence uh, in the courtroom because like you won't be prepared for that. It's just like it's shocking to me how unprepared people are for real world just slapping them in the face. Oh, yeah. No, like med school, I feel the same way about the vast majority of my peers as well. That, but it, I think it just comes stems from life, like lack of life experience, and like with these graduate level degrees, like most people are going to these graduate level de- or pursuing these graduate level degrees because they have always wanted to do that, and they prepare their entire lives to do that. Like you know, like you go, people will go like apply to college for undergrad and like choose an undergrad major with the intent of becoming a lawyer, become going to become a doctor. You know, they like do everything right in undergrad, and they you know go to med school or law school right after they graduate from undergrad. So I never had that like life experience of like working in teams of like le- appreciate like doing leadership, like, having leadership like opportunities or leadership skills, having people skills, having emotional intelligence, having being professional like all these things that we kind of take for granted uh, that we learn like in the military, like learn all these things on how to do these things that like ev- are like my peers and your peers never experienced like being a leader, like never experienced like working with others because they've always been like focused solely on going to medicine or in the law. And I think that's a huge, like huge, like weakness of like these professional degrees is that, you know, your people are coming almost straight into it and are, and are missing all those life experiences that make you a better, like, individual and more, like, gritty and more resilient and able to excel uh, in tough situations. Yeah, I mean, like, real-world situations that are an actual pain in the dick. Uh, here at Carson, one of the brigades just sent out a letter saying, like, essentially, you can't go on leave. Uh, like PCS and TDY are, are canceled and, until, you know, later in the spring till they get this issue resolved. But you can't leave, like, Colorado Springs plus, like, 20 miles. So, like, the furthest north you can go is essentially halfway to Denver. The furthest south you can go is maybe where people live um, that commute to, to Carson from a distance. The furthest west you can go is essentially just outside of, like, Manitou Springs. So, like, you can't go anywhere. Oh, and by the way... If your children are off from school, which is like everybody now because schools have been shut down for anywhere from two to six weeks nationwide, uh, if you don't have like a daycare set up and you want to take time off, like you have to take your leave. You're, you, are, you will be forced to take leave in order to like care for your children, which sucks. Like that's an actual like, hey, I'm saving up these leave days for either when uh, I PCS, I want to take vacation, uh, whether I was going to take vacation later in the summer with my family. Like now I have to, if, if, you know, my wife works or my husband works, I've got to now take leave in order to be with my children because I can't leave my children alone because they're not at school. Like it's like, that's an awful situation, but you're telling me these students, the worst that they have to deal with is finding toilet paper and sitting in front of the laptop, which they do in class anyway, and just take notes digitally. Like, is that really, I don't think that's like a threshold level for freaking out the way that some of these people no. do. No, at the same time, like you just, I just have to imagine like being that kind of student where they've worked their entire lives to like 
get to this point in law school and they've never experienced like failure or something like that and like this is like a you know scares them and like things that might it might make them think that they might fail or like they're the, the odds are stacking against them when they've always tried to stack the odds in their favor and then this is a time when like the odds are being stacked against them they can't control it so i imagine this is like some them trying to to grasp or like wrestle some control back in their lives by like acting out in such a way yeah they've they've drafted this note that they requested you know the student body sign and i put out like a small blurb like i just want to make sure this is not a on behalf of all students because there's definitely individuals in this student body that don't feel as strongly um, towards the response of the the dean and the administration. I think that the the dean and the administration did a great job. Like given all of mm-hmm. the things they had to work with, all of the other major academic institutions in the city closing their doors within 24 hours of one another, and then figuring you know out how we're going to do the e-learning. Like that was a lot. So the things that they weren't considering within the first 12 hours of the announcement. Like okay, if we really have to get students out of the uh, on-campus housing. You know, how are we going to do that? Where are we going to move them? Um, if we have, you know, students that have meal plans here that have already paid for meal plans, how do we make sure they still get their food or do we have to reimburse them? So things like that that clearly weren't like a top three or four priority when you're actually managing a tier one law school. That was like brought up within the first couple minutes of the announcement coming up by students because they couldn't see a big picture because they were being super selfish. And people like snapped back when I was like, hey, I just want to make sure that this is not like an obligatory uh, message that, you know, I'm going to have my name attached to. And people are like, no, like, that's not it. Like, we have real problems here. Uh, and, and, people, and I was like, OK, well, how about we do this instead? Someone make a spreadsheet. And if you want to volunteer this month, since nobody's going to have an hour and a half commute any longer taking the subways in the city, like go and help out like like what we talked about in one of our updates you know, a a homeless shelter, Uh, go find students that are from low income families that, you know, have to go um, to food drives to get the food that they should have been able to receive in school through subsidies. Like, let's go do something and like maximize maybe our health since we are not the population that's significantly at risk here. Like that's the kind of stuff that the students should have been considering first before just making it about, you know, how this 24 year old is having such a hard time dealing with learning and having to scroll Instagram at the same time. Like, it's just pathetic. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that because my class went through the same exact thing two years ago during our second year. I can't remember like what was like the stimulus or what caused this response, but like basically like some students, it was, I think it was like second semester of our second year. So it's like a very stressful period of our times because we're, everybody's prepping for our first uh, set of boards, step one. Is it summer at second at, at during second year? So I, I guess people were like kind of like stressing about that, and basically some people in my class wrote a letter to the school administration asking for Fridays off, like having Fridays off completely so that we can have more time to study. And I was like, "What the fuck? Are you kidding me? Like, are you like are you telling me because you you feel like overwhelmed because you didn't study the other two years of med school so far, and you like realize that you're so far behind in your studying that you're you can't pass the boards." Which, ironically enough, the people that like the people that complain the most are the ones that didn't pass their boards because you know they're there trying to compensate for the fact that they weren't studying uh, by asking the school to change the entire school's curriculum so to allow them to have Fridays off so they can study more. It's like this is laughable. It's like so selfish and so self-centered because you know, like the rest of us, like we, like I studied, started studying for my boards like a year and a half advance. Like I started studying for it because I realized that you know. The more you learn now, the less 
you have to learn in the future and like you have to put the time in in order to like get to like to learn you have to put the time in you have to put like just like working out and training like you have to put the time in and train if you want to show up on game day so like i've always had the mentality so like i always have been studying and like kind of honing i hate to like say it like that but like honing my craft like it's just a it's just part of being like professional you know and it just like blew my mind that people were like freaking out about this because they hadn't taken it like too hard they didn't t- like view medicine as a profession like like i take this shit seriously like medicine is a profession like i'm always reading uh like new papers and learning as much as i can about everything because there's so much like it's impossible to know everything and learn everything so i just try my hardest to like you know be the best version of myself possible by learning as much as i can because it's like a profession like you're dealing with life and death like it, this shit matters like you shouldn't you know take a go like a 50 like 75 percent effort you should give it 100 percent effort you know well, that, that's completely right. It goes back to, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. You should have the mentality that shit's going to happen. Like, you're going to have to deal with it. But at the end of the day, there are much bigger issues at play than, like, what is going on in your small bubble, especially, right. again, at school. Like, you are you are at a, a significant advantage over everyone already because you already have an undergraduate degree. You did well enough in your undergraduate degree program to get into a graduate degree program. And now you're at a graduate degree program that's probably going to guarantee you a more comfortable lifestyle than 99% of the American population. So complaining mm-hmm. about very stupid shit just makes you look completely privileged. It goes back to the idea that the academia community is completely separated from regular Americans. And so, you know, going back to, for instance, um, the hearings on the Hill where you had, I think, four professors, uh, like one was from Harvard, one was from GW, and they were talking um, about the, you know, Trump's two uh, charges from from the House on impeachment and, you know, going historically through what a high crime and misdemeanor was. It's like people watching it, I mean, it's it's just a huge disconnect because it was a, a very, like, academic focused discussion rather than like what the regular American is going to be able to process and understand. And so it it immediately just came across as if you, if you thought that president Trump did something wrong, but not worth impeaching him, it's like, well, these academic people are just looking way too much into what every single word means rather than like a plain meeting. This is how I interpret, you know, article two of the constitution. Like that's where I'm basing my, you know, philosophy off of. And it's just like, you don't need to be told what to think. It's, I think, one of the reasons why between um, academia and the news programs nowadays, it's like driving such a divide amongst Americans because you're being told what to think, not how to think. Right. So you think that, like, how media is, like, using, like, um, I guess, like, professional academics to, like, te- like, to spread their ideas for example like with coronavirus like using you know doctors to tell you what to do that it um is causing a further divide is that what you're saying i would yeah i would say that from the perspective on like a social commentary uh using you know cnn msnbc let's say those are the the more liberal news platforms they're going to bring in very senior professional academic certified people professors, deans to talk about a book they wrote or to talk about, uh, you know, their personal view on a subject relating to, you know, President Trump or relating to the Republican Party and the downfall of America. And then conversely, you're going to see Fox News 
not do that. Instead, they're going to bring people on that have no background in any one of those topics, but they're going to be able to ask the rhetorical questions that, you know, a host on CNN wouldn't pose to a, you know, a senior professional in the academic community about their, their beliefs. And so they're just going to play back and forth and be like, okay, Fox News is going to tell you that you have to distrust everything because everything is a deep state conspiracy. CNN is going to tell you that you should be fearful of the government and fearful of Trump because this is what professors are telling you to think. And like at no point are either networks just saying, okay, these are different ways that we can think about the situation. Now come and form your own conclusion. It's like there's oh, yeah. there's no longer uh, discussion on cable news. Every si- I mean, look back on it. Like every single news pr- program now is named after the host. Like, I mean, I feel like back in the day it was like, you know, M- NBC Nightly News, and then it was like NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams. Larry King Live was like the only real, like, you know, bona fide, like, CNN night host. Everything else was just like, this is 60 Minutes. This is Fox News Tonight. Like, now it's like, this is Tucker Carlson. This is Sean Hannity. This is the Ingram Angle. Like, everybody has this person just getting up there and reading off a teleprompter with their political backgrounds formulating what they're going to talk about. And at no point is it actually a discussion. It's just, hey, I'm Anderson Cooper. This is what I think. This is how you will think about it because I'm telling you what you should think. Like news networks now are no longer about reporting news. It's just making like news celebrities. Yeah. No, that's 100% like the issue with the mainstream media. Like I don't, you don't want to get into like all the conspiracy and like how the mainstream media drives American culture. But I mean, if you think about it, it does drive kind of the culture of America. And then when you have media outlets, all they try to do is to create sensational headlines to get viewers because that's how they derive their, their values, how many viewers they can get. So the more sensational, the more evocative, you know, topics will get more views and more clicks because that drives their business, their business model. So then you're, the media is incentivized to create complete polarizing viewpoints in order to separate themselves from the other competitors, the other news sources. So like this what ends up like I think I think a lot of people are frustrated by the mainstream media have turned to other sources of information because of that fact, because like there's no middle ground where you can go to like one source that can give you the information without biasing you towards one side or the other. Like there are very few media sources that do that because they're they're It's not good business for them to give you the information. It's good business for them to tell you what to think so that you go back to them every day so to learn what to think because you can't think for yourself. Like you're saying, right. It's so why it's like the, it's why media yeah. outlets like, uh, what is it? Young Turks took off, uh, a uh-huh. couple of years ago. It's why that yeah. one, one America or on America that like super right wing, like drudge report inspired, uh, platform took off. I mean, there's a, dude that I went to undergrad with, uh, he has a YouTube channel, uh, Brian Cohen. And for like a long time, like I'd watch his stuff because it would be a very, it's like six minutes and it was six minutes on like something that was topical for that day, whether it was like, I'm going to show you three minutes of the actual news clip or the interview and then break it down. And you got like, I can't read the, 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 the titles of his, his little, you know, newsreels anymore because it's just like devastating, damning news about Trump and, like it's just speaking in such like superfluously dangerous language like everything mm-hmm. is a bombshell yeah, um, everything is the nail in the coffin on on Trump's you know next election and it's like oh we know that if Trump has a, a uh, you know a, what it, what it, what do they 
base his, uh, not the electability, but um, his approval rating. His approval rating is at mm-hmm. 45%. No president with a crisis going on has ever won re-election, you know, when not at least at 47.5%. Just like, God, this is such, this is so stupid. Like, why don't you just say, like, what did President Trump say about corona today? Like, what didn't he do in the last two weeks, but, you know, we can't do anything about it. How can we move and go forward? Or, but it's like they just, it's the same news over and over and over again. And it's all just negative. On no, no, yeah, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, every single news program's like the Armageddon's here. Because that's what pays, and that's what pays the bills for the media, is that it's viewers that pays the bills. So the more sensational, the more attention-grabbing, the more clickbaity you are, the more you get paid. So... I think it's just a commentary on kind of our culture and, and allowing, but I don't know like what you can do about it too at the same time at this point, you know, like, you know, all the media agencies dominate the news, so to speak. So, and aside from like print news, like I don't know that many people that read the news from like a, you know, just like a, like from a newspaper perspective, you know? No. Cause it's really hard sometimes to get like, you know, accurate news. You feel like you can, rely on I, I went to mm. uh the new york times building to you know just do a, a meet and greet with some of um uh one of their their lawyers there just to get an idea of you know the range of topics that they have to cover you know and being there was like wow this is like a real professional uh building it's a it's a beautiful building uh, that has like like dozens of floors not all of it um geared towards just what the times does and then you see, like, okay, if the Times is supposed to be moderate, maybe a little left-leaning, then you come out and it's like they supported, I think they supported, like, Bernie Sanders or Amy Klobuchar, like, a couple months ago. And then it was like, okay, more extreme media is just attacking it, like Jezebel, um, it, you know, their, their catch line is a supposedly feminist uh, website, you know, attacks them for, you know, not supporting, like, um, Elizabeth Warren. And it's just like, God damn, there's just... There's nowhere out there now that people just respect the news for what it's supposed to do because none of the news does any longer what it was supposed right. to and meant to do. Yeah, and that's why people would just become so disenchanted by the media because, you know, you're just like bombarded by all these sensational ideas and viewpoints that don't really align with yours. And I think what ends up happening is that these you you find like a viewpoint that's kind of close to yours and you kind of follow, and then it, that becomes like your news source. And then you just get further and further, like, uh, I hate to say the word, like, idealized and further and further radicalized, you know? Yeah, and and two, when you bring on people that have, uh, like, a, you know, a, a conflicting opinion, for instance, um, on Fox News, you've got, was it the Fox 5? Or, but it's got, like, Juan, uh, Jesse, um... Gilfoyd, I think. So it's got a couple hosts, but, you know, one of them is uh, liberally leaning. And whenever they were having, like, a sincere conversation, it was like uh, Jesse Waters, I think is his name, was uh-huh. working for Bill O'Reilly for a long time. So he he talks the exact same way Bill O'Reilly does. I think they're gearing him up to have his, like, own show in the next two to three years, maybe replace, like, Tucker Carlson, who, as conservative as he is, does not toe the line nearly as much as like uh, Sean Hannity. Uh Um, But like they would just start making jokes about whatever opinion that, you know, the liberal host had. And uh, again, going to rhetorical questions, you would never have like an honest conversation. Like I would watch CNN all the time and it was like, okay, like now bring in why from an actual, like, 
you know, law, law, lawyer, counsel based background, why maybe the president would not be found guilty. Like just humor your your viewers as to what the other side was like. And so instead it was just 24 seven Trump's guilty. He'll be impeached. It was like the same reason why Trump won the election and about nobody trusts the media because not a single poll ever came out and said, you know, president Trump had a chance or, you know, Hillary Clinton is just so far and above him that we're not even going to bother, you know, talking about the other issues. And then all of a sudden election night comes out and president Trump wins, doesn't win the popular vote by any means, but you know, takes advantage of the Electoral College and crushes Hillary Clinton's uh, weaknesses at uh, campaigning, you know, in some key states. But it's like nobody talked about that. So, of course, now you've just completely disenfranchised any single viewer because you are too narrowly focused and tailored on what you think your population wanted to see. It's just it's right. pathetic. You're right. And then, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think the solution to that is, though? I think the solution, and this is going to come at, <laughs> like, not from a like fascist type background, but I don't think you should be able to call yourself a news network if you have such such sensational uh, views. And like, I don't mean like you should be able to censor the CNNs and Fox Newses of the world, but it should not be Fox News. It should just be Fox. It should not be CNN. And I can't remember what CNN stands for. I'm sure one of the N's is news. Cable like, News Network. There we go. It should just be cable network. <laughs> like, CN, and then Cartoon Network is going to have a problem with that. But like, don't call yourself a news network if you can't show on a graph that 50% of your time was split between like a conservative and a liberal approach. Or like every single show has to have at least two moderators if you're a news network that will discuss you know, both sides of the coin. Because right now all it's doing is fracturing the United States. And again, I'm not saying censor them. I'm saying you can't call yourself a news outlet if all you do is focus on one view and then you can be like, no, we're pretty, you know, neutral and then show 15 seconds that you spent during the day like showing in defense of President Trump if you're CNN or, you know, in defense of Nancy Pelosi's attacks if you're Fox News. Like that's just, it seems really counterintuitive that we haven't come to some solution where these news networks are held accountable for the the distrust that they're selling in the population. But isn't that like a government infringement on free speech? No, it's not an infringement on free speech because we're not pre- uh, preventing, we I say the government, the government would not be preventing you from talking. We're not preventing you from earning an income we're simply saying that, you know, just like when um, they came up with, you know, the agencies that ran the radio broadcasting in the early 1900s on what could be said um, on the air, it's the same thing with, like, the FCC. Like, you should be able to control to a certain degree if you're calling, for instance, like a nonprofit. Like, we can't call ourselves a nonprofit if more than, like, 50% of the revenue that we generate is coming from investments. Uh, we can't be a nonprofit if we're taking like a salary and not giving any money back whatsoever. Like there were requirements for us to file as a nonprofit. The same should be if you file as a news network. You have to meet certain requirements um, in your, you know, ability to earn that privileged title as as a news agency. Is what I'm saying. So let's take it like one step further then. So like, based on this regulatory agency 
this regulatory agency would then kind of weigh in on whether or not a news source was uh, being fair or not. So then what's to prevent this news agency from skewing the narrative even further to for, because it's a government agency and it's run by human beings, you know, who are inherently selfish and, um, and fallible. So what is the, you know, prevent that from happening from like the media becoming a state run media or state regulated media. Well, that's so that's what, a good, you know, that's a good question. So the, the way that runs is, and there's a big, there's a big, uh, not political, uh, divide between like agency theory. Um, but it's the non-delegation doctrine. So when, when the Congress drafts what agencies are supposed to do, um, they can extend to the agency, the ability to make policy that has to be, drafted by the legislature, and then the agencies are only uh, uh, able to operate within a narrowly tailored scope um, that the Congress provides. And also because a lot, you know, the agencies a lot of times fall under the executive branch because, you know, they deal with actual enforcement. And so, like, you look at equal opportunity, uh, the Equal Employment Opportunity, uh, was a commission or something that was formed back in the, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Like, they have the power to adjudicate and to go and say, like, hey, this is what equal employment looks like. Uh, but they can't, like, they can draft some rules, but you, these agencies are not allowed to make lawmaking um, that goes beyond uh, what the Congress has defined. It's the same way that, you know, like, the uh, special uh, prosecutor, you know, works under the attorney general and in the investigation of President Trump. Like, you can only fire him for cause. So you can establish conditions within the agency to require that you have to have like a multi-board uh, uh, council. So you have to have at least six individuals uh, that are gonna serve for a period term of 15 years. Three of them have to be Republican, three of them have to be Democratic. Uh, and so you create the conditions like that to avoid being politically biased because you're not tied to a single Congress, just like the Supreme Court justices uh, aren't tied real politically because they serve much longer than whatever session of Congress we're in or much longer than whatever president is serving so that you have consistency. So when you build these kind of models into the agency and you avoid the um, the, the Constitution first article breakdown of, of what you know non-delegatory uh, power is, then you really establish a system by which we can make sure that it's not a state-run media, that it is not a dictated this is what you must do. And again, going back to the freedom of speech element of this, this is not saying that you lose that freedom of speech because at no point would the government take away your ability to broadcast. It would simply remove the modifier in your name of news. For and, and I see. And if you have um, like a compelling interest and it's very narrowly tailored to whatever that issue is that the agency is um, directed to solve, uh, then you can go above the strict scrutiny level that is required when you review what power the ad agency actually has um, in you know review of whatever laws Congress passes and they have to enact. Interesting. So why don't you think that this has happened yet? Because it sounds like um, like a pretty good idea in my mind. I mean, it sounds like th th there needs to be some changes, but. You know, basically on the state of the media right now. I mean, I think it's like the all it's like the lowest levels of trust in the media by any any period, like historically. So, well, what do you think is kind of holding back this from, you know, improving? I think it's the the media itself. It's can you imagine if you know a couple senators came out or a couple members of the House of Representatives and said, "Hey, we want to take away the." 
uh, news title from all of these major networks unless that you know they conform to actual you know whatever rules that the agency creates um, like do you think the news networks would really cover that in a positive light if you had to tell the you know CNN you're about to lose an N uh, Fox News you're just going to be Fox uh, MSNBC you're just going to be MSBC like I think I think all those news networks would unite and just completely trash the plan as being, again, fascist and anti-free speech. And then you could show them, like, and it's not anti-free speech. It's like, you know, it, it's it's one thing if we were preventing you from earning an income, talking, preventing your views um, from being uh, addressed. It's like not one individual is being uh, attacked. This is just a general law now requiring all individuals that want whatever, you know, status this is. You know, especially when you have to comport with the requirements of the FCC already, it shouldn't be that big of a switch to just ensure that you're covering in a fair and balanced way. Right, right. Yeah. I don't know. I wish that we could change it because uh, I hate the media right now. And I, it's ho- so hard for me to get accurate news. Uh, I actually just recently started a Twitter account uh, like last week, but I only strictly follow like news agencies like news agencies and like uh like medical journals just so I can stay on top of like new articles and stuff like that new information coming up but that's made me really see like all the like how headlines twist events because I see all the like the same like different media sources report the same information but they spin it in such a way that conforms with their ideology so it's very interesting to me like going scrolling through my twitter feed and seeing like one you know like the New York Times reporting on something that Trump did, and then you know Fox News reporting on the same thing but spinning in a certain way. It's just like it's just quite frankly kind of disgusting. And I just wish I could find one source that I could just follow for all my news and just be done at that. But you can't. No, and if people want like an example, if you've been in a field training exercise for the past week and want like what's happened in the last seventy-two hours, you know we closed as a country all travel for non-U.S. citizens coming from the entirety of Europe to now include Mm -hmm. uh, the United Kingdom and Ireland. And this is now like what, almost 30 days after the first confirmed case of the COVID-19 in the United States. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the CNNs of the world are saying like, this is such a slow response. Like if you just look at the last 30 days of president Trump saying, this is not a national emergency to when he declared a national emergency, like he's such a buffoon. And then you look over at Fox news and they're like, he did like, we we have done such a significant, superior, awesome, very stoke-worthy uh, job here closing the borders. We're the only country that's done that this far, and that's why we've saved tens of thousands of lives. It's like, what the fuck? Like, neither one of those things is, like, the actual, actual news of the day. Like, we closed our borders. Okay, what is the impact? Like, the, the, the look should just be, what's the impact? What's the likelihood that we're going to contain maybe the spread through major airports now? Um, what could have been done earlier again could have should have would have doesn't really matter you know like hindsight's 2015 like move on like continue focusing on the the news but the fact that it's both just like one is is painting Trump as this villain and the other one's painting Trump as this like godsend it's 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 foolish and it's completely unnecessary given the actual stakes of what's at, at risk for a senior population in the United States Oh yeah, I was gonna say that. Uh, I w- was actually saying the other like couple weeks ago or like last week something to some of my other friends, some of my other buddies, 
basically mm-hmm. that the whole situation with COVID nineteen in America is worse now because Trump had took it had approached it so lackadaisically. Like remember all those tweets and all the like everything you said now a couple of weeks ago saying, Oh, it's just a flu, like the flu kills more people every year. So I think it lulled the like American population to like a sense of complacency and just like, you know, brushing it off and saying, Oh, it's just like a cold, it's just like the flu, whatever, no big deal. But it is like a really big deal. Like people it kills like about three percent is case vitality rate. Like three percent of people that get infected with it kill it. And if you look at like the flu, the flu infects like, you know, like a hundred million people a year in America. And if this disease is just like the flu and infects a hundred million people in America and kills three percent of it, that's three hundred thousand people. You know. Is that math right? Three million. Three million people. Now, three, yeah, three million people. So just, yeah, so just th- take that into perspective. Like, and I think Trump did a huge disservice to like this country by kind of brushing it off. Cause, and then another thing is if you look at like Italy's response, Italy had like very similar response. Like their, their prime minister kind of like brushed it off. Like no big deal. Our country can handle it. Like it's just like the cold or it's just like the flu or whatever. But now you look at Italy now, like they have the highest like fatality rate, like people are dying, everything's closed down. And if you look at the trajectories of like America and Italy's like infective rate and death rate, it's pretty mirror. Like we're a couple of weeks behind them in terms of the timeline, but like in America, it's going to get a lot worse pretty soon. And people aren't taking it seriously. Like, you know, the whole point of canceling schools that are canceling schools is that, you know, you minimize exposure to the possible spread of it. Like and that's why China and Korea have been really good and about stopping the spread of it. Like that's why China doesn't have any new cases being reported because they have literally locked themselves at home and not gone outside to spread the disease and like you know italy's trying to do that but they're kind of late in the game now and that it's already spread so much uh before they enacted these tough like measures so like i think in america we're kind of taking it too lackadaisically and it kind of stems from the above and how our country's leadership approaches it and like you know everyone takes their cues from the leader so if a country's leader takes it really lackadaisically, like that lulls there, that leads the country in a sense of like, you know, complacency and not taking it seriously. And then now it's going to be like, pretty surely it's probably going to be really serious that we just haven't gotten to that point yet, that critical mass like it has in Italy. No, and the testing too is like so far behind. One, NHL season got canceled. And so far the Canucks, I think, have come up with a potential cure to COVID 19 that they're now just testing on mice. But uh, one of my other group chats with some of my other uh, law school buddies um, introduced, like, a story from an ER doc that said, like, 20 people had come into, like, the corona unit. And he believed about, like, eight of them actually had it based on, like, some viral pneumonia-type symptoms um, and a bunch of them sharing such close proximity. But of those, like, 20 individuals, only two even got the corona test that they're calling, like, the the Roni test. But all of them got sent home. So all of them, all, all these people are getting sent home because we don't have the testing capabilities. Uh, and so eventually, like, it's just like, especially New York City, like, I'm so glad I got out of, you know, when I did, I'm probably going to you know, stay out in Colorado till mid-April now just to avoid that if I'm just going to be studying online anyway. Because, like, there's been food runs. I mean, like, you just, you know, showed me a photo the other day of, like, you know it's bad when firm tofu is completely out of stock at the store. Like, uh, Costco here in the Springs was completely out of chicken. Um, you could still get like some beef. There's no toilet paper to be found anywhere. Uh, you know, but it's like you're, people are also forgetting that if you're a young, healthy adult or adolescent youth, like you're not the population that's at risk. Like unless you have like a cardiovascular disease, 
um, or symptoms, or you are, you know, like probably 60 to 70 plus and older, like that's the population that should probably be more fearful of like stocking up on something to quarantine themselves to avoid this mm-hmm. kind of, you know, pandemic like symptoms. But like, I don't think it's, I think right now we're in a, a state of like, oh, it's going to get better because people are like self quarantining. But I think this shit's about to pop off. Oh, I 100% agree. And that's like the scary thing too is like we know that people have had coronavirus. They just haven't been tested for it because there were no tests available and, and they didn't meet the screening requirements for the testing. Like I joke with Christina that we probably had it like last month, but like there's a pretty good chance that we probably did have it last month because it was probably here before we knew it was here and that we just weren't testing for it. So we didn't know what it, what it was because like um, like the actual prevalence rate, there's probably like 10 times as many more cases of coronavirus of COVID-19 than we have actually reported because we don't we don't have enough test kits to test everybody for it. And that's what like South Korea, the data from South Korea is re- South Korea is really interesting. So if you look at the data for the positive tests, it's something like 40% of people ages 20 to 29 test positive for, for COVID-19, for the virus, but they don't show symptoms. And that's like the scary thing too, if you really think about it, because like you said, it's not the young people like us that are at risk of dying from it. It's all the old people, the people with medical comorbidities, people that are sick, people with cancer, people, you know, with immunosuppression, like transplants. Like there are like a very, there's a very, like the COVID-19 is very mortal in certain, uh, certain populations, patient populations. So that, you know, when you're young and you're just like, whatever, with, like, I'm not going to get sick. I'm not going to die. Yeah. You're probably not going to die, but you are going to spread it to people that are going to, that are sick and they won't be able to survive the virus. And that's like the scary thing too, because I think like I was just saying, like everyone has like this sense of complacency because they don't think they have it because they aren't showing symptoms. But at the same time, we know that the average, the mean to sh- or the median to, to symptom exposure is five days. So there's five days where you're shedding the virus where you don't show symptoms. And the median virus shedding is like around 20 days. So there's tw- like, once you get it, you know, you can spread the virus for up to 20 days, even though you're not showing symptoms. So it's like, that's kind of the scary part too, is that there are so many people that we don't know whether or not they even had had coronavirus and you can't test them now because they aren't showing symptoms and they aren't, you know, uh, aren't showing symptoms. So they don't meet like screening requirements to get, test them because the tests are such limited supply that we're probably, probably like people are probably spreading it and have been spreading it for the last couple of weeks. And we just don't know because people aren't getting tested for it. So and you're saying it's, is part. that, is that 20 days? So if I, if I was, say, exposed to corona on the first of the month and, like, I got corona, would I be healthy after 20 days or 14 days? Or is that the time at which I can no longer pass it? Oh, no. So you can pass it all the way up to, like, so if you got on the first March, you'd still be spreading it around. And it's the fact that, but you probably don't realize it because in our age population, it's probably like a cold or like a slight, like, upper, upper respiratory infection. So you get, like, a little bit of cough. You get a little fever. All you think is like the, the like a flu or a cold. No big deal. You drink like Gatorade. You drink water, and then after a couple of days, you feel better. The cough is still probably a little bit there. Maybe a little lingering cough, but like you feel much better. Like no fever. Everything's okay. You just think you just have like a cough. That's kind of like that's exactly what I had experienced like last month. Like I was like wrecked for a weekend, like fever, cough for a weekend, like two days, and then Monday I was fine, and I was like no fever, felt fine. And like, I hate to joke about it, but like, I wonder if I had coronavirus back then because, you know, it's the same picture that you expect to see someone like a young person that's healthy, they get infected, they get a, like a little viral infection, like a cough, like a viral cough. And then it just kind of goes away on its own. And, but that's like the population that, you know, is going to spread it without realizing they're spreading it. And that's like why it's so important that people keep stressing the like social distancing. 
it's not to protect you, it's to protect the people that are not healthy that might catch the virus and that might kill them if they catch the virus. So that's like my thing. Like I don't, I'm limiting a lot of my exposure to like outside in general. Uh, so I'm doing like my part in social distancing. Like we just go to the grocery store to get food and then we don't go out to like socialize. Like we were supposed to get dinner with Christina's like uh, her grandmother and her dad. And, you know, grandma is old, like greater than 80. Her dad has like some medical issues too. So it's like, you know, why risk the possibility of us infecting them and then, then you know, possibly dying when we can just say, you know, we'll cancel dinner until, you know, everything gets a little bit better. We'll hold off. We'll postpone, you know, days. We'll postpone like hanging out. We'll postpone meals just until, you know, things kind of stabilize. We're not scared about potentially infecting and killing other people. Yeah, I thought about going home uh, for maybe a portion of like what was going to be my spring break or even after it's like my, my grandmother's 96 and moved in with my parents. It's like, I'm yeah, exactly. I'm not about to even like, you know, risk introducing that to her, especially, you know, I look at my grandmother. It's like, let's see, she lived through the great depression. She lived through world war two, Korea, Vietnam. Like, you know, she's got a large family, you know, her brothers were in world war two. It's like, that's, this is the last thing I need to be like, you know how my grandma went out like fighting a cold that I gave to her because I decided to like travel home to see her, you know, instead of waiting a month. Yeah. And that's like the really kind of alarming thing that people aren't really taking into account is like the young people who who see that it's so cheap to travel now are going to start traveling because it's so cheap to travel. But instead it's like the perfect way to spread the virus is these young asymptomatic carriers who then spread it all over, you know, wherever they go. So that's like the scary part. And I honestly like, it sucks to stay at home and not do anything. And it sucks not to like, not to go out and spend your money, like traveling to cool places for really cheap because, you know, tickets are so cheap, but like, you should really like, it's not just about you. And like, it sucks. Like I get it. Like I might not be able to graduate, have the graduating ceremony, but at the same time though, like I would really hate to ha- be selfish and then end up spreading the disease to some people that I care about, like the older people in the neighborhood. Like you don't know cause you aren't getting tested for it. So you don't know if you have it or not. Yeah, it's hundred percent. But yeah, I think uh, I guess we should probably close out with that then. <laughs> a little, a little sober. Yeah. Uh, so I will close it out on my end uh, before handing it off to Bobby with this. Uh, again, we talked about like helping out homeless shelters if you're in, like a, a really densely populated city, um, and, and if you're healthy and you you know you feel like you can, you know, try to find a way whether it's through like donations or donating food, um, if you, if you can't donate money, uh, you know, and, and non-perishables, uh, to these shelters, uh, the restaurant industries are going to be wrecked. Um, if you can help out, you know, kids that were relying on the like school subsidized lunches and breakfast, you know, find out in your local area, uh, what you can do, but also just stay healthy. So don't think that you have to be like holed up in a house looking at a corner, like if you can get out and hike, if you can get out and run, like do the things that would otherwise make you a healthy individual that would make it more difficult for a flu or a cold to, to really wreck you. Um, because Bobby just brought up about how he was wrecked for a weekend and it might have been COVID-19, but gets after it almost once, not twice a day uh, with his workout routine. So I'm sure that has like a huge impact on the health of the body fighting off you know, any kind of infection. So stay healthy, stay working out. uh, And if you can be somebody, donate to some great charities. Um, 
you know, if you find others and want us to, to donate as well, because that's you know, a, a, lot, a lot of what we're doing this month is going to be donating to not only just the brain cancer research that we introduced, um, but, you know, now this COVID-19 outbreak and, and the two aforementioned uh, groups that are going to be, you know, hardest hit. So, Bobby? Yeah, pretty much just to reiterate what I just mentioned about, you know, keeping, trying to isolate yourself a little bit more from, um, like, the elderly or people that are sick, because you never know if you're going to transmit it to somebody else, like, unintentionally. Uh, so I would really stress, like, really consider, like, who you're seeing and who you're spending time with and try to minimize the time that you have, you know, in close proximity to other people that could get sick that you wouldn't want to get sick. Uh, so be- because of that, uh, I'm actually going to start changing my programming to include, um, to be more or like less equipment oriented. It's like more things that you can do outside. Uh, if you have like a kettlebell or dumbbell, it's like low equipment style workouts. And I always include like a, I'll include like a low or like no equipment, uh, alternative for my programming for the foreseeable future, just the way so that you guys can still get after it at home or wherever you are, where you're not able to, if you're not, if your gym shuts down, for example, or you know, just try to minimizing your exposure outdoors. Like I'll give you a couple also programming in such a manner that you can do most of the pieces at home or with little pieces of, of weight. Um, and that'll be for the foreseeable future until, you know, this gets better managed or we start seeing something, uh, some improvements, uh, other things, um, leave a five-star review. We always appreciate the five-star reviews, sharing it with your, with your friends, and then one uh, last thing I'm going to want to talk about is the um, the charity of the month, the Brain Cancer Research Fund. So we've had a lot of people already start purchasing products with the code. Um, so we really appreciate you guys supporting it. And honestly, like it's just a good opportunity to, you know, take um, what you have and pass it on and give it back to other people that you know might need it more than you do. And that's always been our mission with Cronus is to give back to others and, and help inspire others through service. So that's kind of what. You know, we're really excited to continue with the charity of the month because it really allows us to to fill out our mission and to continue pursuing our vision of helping out those in need and giving back. So we really appreciate all you guys that have donated so far and that um, have gotten involved. Um, keep following the site um, and then, you know, keep buying programs. We're going to keep running the sale for the rest of the month. And then I am still working on my new program i'm doing a 25 week program uh that's on a running clock so it's only 45 minutes of training a day um so it's something i've been working on so i'm kind of hoping to get this out uh this week so stay uh alert for that um i'll make it paid for, for uh, i think i'll i think we said we we're gonna make it paid right sean make it a paid program the 25 week program yeah 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 but it, you know price so that it's way more affordable than any other six-month program out there and, and price, yeah. you know, in, in how we view uh, how fitness should not be a secret. So, like, way less than, like, $4 a week even. Yep. So, if you that's another great point. Like, if you do the math on, like, the per week or per month programming, it, it's really, like, a drop in the bucket. And if you, like, average it out, like, even the most expensive program we have is the 25-week Get Yoked that I wrote. And we're selling it for seventy five dollars, so it's three dollars a day or three dollars a month or three dollars a week. So like twelve bucks a month, like that's like your Hulu or your your Netflix subscription. Like you can afford uh, the program, and it's good stuff. Like I, for everyone that has done it and had given us feedback, it's a good program, and you will get in real good shape running our programs. So we appreciate you guys supporting us, and in turn, we'll continue supporting others in need. Um, but that wraps up for me, Sean. Yeah, uh, everyone have a safe weekend. We'll we'll see how uh, the state of the country is. 
next week we're, we're likely going to talk about uh, how to board up windows, um, what kind of Mustang you want to drive around an abandoned New York City, what radio frequencies you should have, how to protect yourself in your brownstone house uh, in Union Square. What else did Will Smith do? Oh, how to do pull-ups. Uh, we'll definitely talk about that, how to get a ripped back for your social media following as you're dealing with the uh, zombie apocalypse. And don't forget to have a sweet Golden Shepherd, or German Shepherd. Yeah, but, uh, ger- well, we'll go Belgian Malinois because German Shepherds aren't allowed in New York City, but uh, Belgian Malinois are, so uh, Interesting. sweet Belgian Malinois. All right, guys, I wrap it up for this week. Catch you guys later. Peace. Peace.